Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I am talking with Dr. Alicia Walker, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Missouri State University, about her research on infidelity. This is episode 43 of Untenured Tracks. Cheating in the Wild is like a very good title. I Thank think. you, right? <laughs> yes, that's a great title. I'd, I'd love to do uh, a study on folks who are cheating in the wild. I can't figure out how to recruit them. That's my whole. That's how. That's how I ended up at Ashley Madison. Actually, I had this idea. Um, I was a graduate student, like a second year graduate student, working on something totally not this at all, mm-hmm. right? And I get this idea. <laughs> I want to talk to folks who are cheating. And I couldn't figure out where to get my sample, you know? Yeah. And I spent months, like, trying to puzzle that out. How could you find people? Because I felt like even if you put up flyers, like, who's, you know, who's going to risk <laughs> the number off the flyer? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And so... So, yeah, so that's how I ended up at Ashley Madison. But then, you know, there's some, like, really interesting dynamics going on because this is a very different group than folks who are cheating in the wild because they have made this, like, really conscious decision. Um, And so I think it's very fascinating, so I apologize because I will totally geek out about this, and I'm sure lots of people are like, really? Um, But, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And so I spent a year talking to these folks. I talked to 46 women and 46 uh, men, and I I didn't decide, like, well, it's going to be 46. That's just how it worked out. Um, I did the interviewing over email, Mm -hmm. um, which I was initially kind of worried about. Uh, I'm a really good face-to-face interviewer, and I just really wasn't sure if that was going to translate to yeah. email, but actually turned out to be really great. Um, the transcripts were really rich. They were lengthy. Um, sometimes folks would say, this is a great question. I want to think about this a few days before I get back to you. 
you know, they'd spend a while kind of putting a draft together. And so yeah. the responses were just, were really, really rich. We had great conversations. Um, yeah, it turned out to just be a really kind of amazing, uh, pretty all-encompassing project, which is how it became my dissertation. <laughs> and I just like totally changed topics. So that's cool. Um, it happens. It's, it, it does. It happens. <laughs> so, the, so the women's interviews became my dissertation, and that became my first book. But I had the men's interviews. And, um, yeah, so I started working through those. And that's a book that's going to be out, I think, like October, something like that, September, October. Um, cool. So I'm really, really excited. It's been a long time coming. Uh, what is it, 2020 now, right? <laughs> I, I think last I, time I... I, I think it is. My dissertation in 2015. So you know, so this is this has been uh, not an overnight project. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it sounds it sounds like not. Um, so I have to admit, I'm surprised that uh, I I was always under the impression that Ashley Madison was kind of like a fake thing. I'm I'm really surprised to hear that that not only are people using it, but that men and women were using it when you were collecting data. Yeah, yeah, okay, so shortly after I defend my dissertation, I just started my first job, right? Mm -hmm. Like, a few days into my first job, the hack happened. Yeah. You're familiar with the hack. Everybody's heard of the hack, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when I first started this project, when I was trying to explain to people what I was doing, I was saying, Ashley Madison, they're like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, Which maybe they were lying, but people (laughs) would say they didn't know what it was. (laughs) Um, Uh And then once the hack happened, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, and friends, when the hack happens, were sending me emails saying, um, okay, so I'm seeing all this stuff that there's nobody actually on the site, but you just did a study. So like, what's up with that? You know, did you mm-hmm. talk to the only 46 women? Who are <laughs> <laughs> Which actually I talked to way more than 46 men and 46 women, but with email interviewing, sometimes people just vanish. They just yeah. ghost. Um, so yeah, so there's definitely real people on there. I can tell you that. Um, so it's all anonymous and confidential and over email, right? But we we really developed a rapport with one another. And nearly everyone in the study at some point not only revealed their real name, but shared their online footprint with me, if you will. Okay. I don't want to say yeah. anything more than that. Yeah. Um, so I, I was definitely talking <laughs> to real folks. There's no, there's no question in my mind. These are absolutely mm-hmm. real folks. Um, Ashley Madison did do a, uh, they had like a company come in and review their website and what do you call that? Some kind of audit, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, there's a word. I just, it's not coming to me right now. Maybe it'll <laughs> come to me in a second, but they hired somebody to come in and, and uh, they verified that. Yes, there are, there are real people on there. <laughs> there's about as many women on there as there are men which Mm -hmm. is pretty much what i found as well so huh that's i'm surprised um so so what were some of the things i guess let's start with the work from your dissertation um since you said that the new book is kind of a companion to that how about we um or yeah how about we start with that one um so what what was some of the stuff that you found Like, like tell us about the the women that were using ashley madison sure so the thing that stuck out at me immediately about these women is that they were incredibly likable. Mm-hmm. They were gregarious. They were funny. They were intelligent. They were 
great storytellers. Um, sometimes I would literally start laughing to tears <laughs> reading their accounts of things, just their stories of different things in their lives. Um, and I was just really overwhelmed by the idea that, you know, if I knew these women in my real life, I would want to be friends with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I could easily imagine each of them at a party, you know, holding wrapped listeners attention you know in a corner somewhere or something mm-hmm. um which was you know kind of fascinating um so the book that came out of the women's interviews is called the secret life of the cheating wife power pragmatism and pleasure and women's infidelity which are really the three big umbrella things that i found in that study is that for these women and again we can't extrapolate this you know, to folks cheating in the wild. I'm sure that's yep. a very different experience. But for these women, um, it was very much this exercise of power. And we tend to think of power as like having control over someone else, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're going to think about power and gender, we really have to expand our idea of power, right? To include mm-hmm. things like me resisting your will. Like, I know you want me to do something. I'm not going to do it. And that in and of itself is an exercise of power, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So for these women... Um, (laughs) this is a point where a lot of people are like okay but they're cheating come on yes they are but at the same time it is this exercise of power because they're not supposed to be cheating that's not something their husband wants them to do right Mm -hmm. whether they've had an explicit conversation or not they're aware that's not something um, that he wants them doing so they all talked about feeling very powerful just making the decision. But even beyond that, there were all of these interesting dynamics about their relationships that created this like feeling of power and empowerment for them. So things like setting boundaries, they all talked about how bounded these outside relationships were. Okay. So, so you and I meet on the site, we exchange emails, right? Mm-hmm. I'm interested. So these women talked extensively about they're going to ask you all these questions, right? They're going to talk to you about your schedule. Does our schedule match up? You know, Mm -hmm. do you really have time to have an affair with me at the (laughs) times that I have time to have an affair with you, right? Yeah. And really frank sexual conversations Mm -hmm. about what specific sex acts do you enjoy and how do you like to have sex and things about the men's stamina and their size. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all the deep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they were very quick to explain to me, you know, I'm going to do this up front because this is not about how much I like you. Mm -hmm. I have someone at home that I like who isn't getting the job done. I don't need someone else in my life that I like you and think you're great. And so now I feel, you know, kind of beholden to you in some way. So they were specifically seeking a partner who was going to do what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that's it. They weren't interested in doing sex acts. They weren't interested in doing, they weren't interested in having the kind of sex anyone else wanted to have just the kind of sex they wanted to have. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for specific traits, talents, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So more than half of the sample um, were in sexless or orgasmless marriages. Mm-hmm. So either they were in marriages where there's no sex for a host of reasons. A lot of times that's like a health issue on the part of their spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're having sex, but the sex isn't provoking orgasm for them. Mm-hmm. So for these women... And that's like the bulk of the sample. I had seven women who kind of fall in a different category, but we'll circle back to them. So for the bulk of the sample, these women were very 
clear about what the purpose of the mission was, and the mission was sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. So every decision that they made with regard to these outside relationships was about provoking orgasms or trying to at least set up the conditions where that could happen. So they had these very no-nonsense, practical conversations with men before they got to know them as people. Because they said, I don't want to get invested in a guy and then find out, you know, he's into something I'm not into or, or whatever. Yeah. And then once they get past that, there's even more boundaries, right? You know, we're only going to communicate during certain times, right? Because I can't have you infringing on my family time. And we're only going to meet certain times in certain places where I feel comfortable. And, you know, when I decide that I don't want to see you anymore, then it's over. And we're done. And I'm going to move on. And I'm going to make sure that you know that you can never get too comfortable because I have 50 other men willing to take your place at any minute. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and they were just very, you know, matter of fact about all that. And so all of those things, women talked. And this surprised me. This was not, I mean, I don't really know what I expected to find, but this was not something I expected for sure. Women just talking about how powerful it made them feel to be able to set the terms yeah. of these relationships. And all of them said, and I, I found this so fascinating and so true. I said, you know, marriage isn't like that. Mm-hmm. We don't go, go into a marriage and say, this is how often I want to have sex. And this is the kind of sex, I, right? We don't, right? We don't have those, you know, we fall in love with someone and we just think like everything's going to somehow work itself out, right? Yep. And they all said, I, I, <laughs> I wish that I had had these kinds of conversations with my spouse before we got married. You know, I might have maybe made some different decisions. Maybe I wouldn't have. So that uh, power to bound those relationships was really meaningful and salient uh, to the women, which was a big surprise. I was not expecting that at all. Yeah, it kind of sounds like like I'm going to lease a car. <laughs> and this is, yes. this is what I want. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So that's why the title is like power, pragmatism, yeah. right? So, so they talk about this power, right? And they're so pragmatic about everything that's going on. Yeah. There's no sentimentality. There's no, you know, romantic, you know, I'm going to ride off into the sunset with this guy. Matter of fact, they would often say, this guy couldn't lick the shoes of my spouse. <laughs> you know, there wasn't this issue in my marriage. I would never be involved uh-huh. with this guy. Okay. So they had no illusions. There's no rose color glasses. Yeah. This guy's, right? There's none of that. So, so you have that piece. Then you have this other piece where <laughs> the language that they used to talk about it, they would talk about, um, so, so most of them kept multiple concurrent outside partners. So really? they have a spouse. Yeah. And then they have these, which I, again, I don't know what I expected, but that was not anything that I thought was going to hear. Um, you know, in my mind, it's like, I don't know how you have free time to have the first affair, right? But, you know, I don't know. They live better with their time than I am. I don't know. But, um, yeah. You're not, being, you, you're not being pragmatic enough with your time. I'm not, I'm not being pragmatic enough. So I need to, like, get more founded or something. Yeah. So, so they use really um, pragmatic language to talk about that. And they would talk about keeping the candy jar full. Keeping the roster full, you got to keep that warm. <laughs> you know, yeah, pitch hitters. Uh, got to have, uh, got to have horses in the stable. Yeah, they used all this different language. Um, they talked about outsourcing, and that's really how they saw this. Like, 
Like, I have this marriage. I'm married to this guy who I think is great and I have total respect for and I love him and I think he's a great uh, parent, right? And I don't want to not be married to him, but he's not getting my sexual needs filled, so I'm just going to outsource my sexual needs. And one of them explained, you know, if I was building a house, I wouldn't ask my plumber to do the electricity, right? I would get a sub for the electricity and I get a sub for the plumber. I was like, I mean, I can't argue with your logic. Another one said, um, you know, I like eating out. I don't want to eat out at the same restaurant every night, right? I don't have the same thing. I want to, I want to explore the menu, right? So they were very, <laughs> very, very pragmatic about what they were doing, what it meant and navigating that. Yeah, I see yeah. like a lot of neutralizing language coming in <laughs> to try to yeah. <laughs> to try to balance out like the morality and the consequences of what they're doing with some of this. Yeah, <laughs> that was really fascinating. So, so they're using this language, but then they also all of them talked about carrying a lot of guilt despite all of this pragmatism. Yeah, at this time, so that was also kind of interesting. You know how they sort of navigate. Um, both of those sorts of states of being at the same time. And maybe the pragmatism is an effort to mitigate some of that guilt. You know, I don't know. Um, and they talked about, it was really important to them to find a partner who wanted what they wanted. Or like, I don't want to get involved with a guy who wants a second wife. Yeah. I don't want to get involved with a guy who, you know, wants to fall in love with me or, you know, might. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have some guy that I'm worried that he might blow up my life, yeah. you know, or show up on my doorstep or take up way too much of my time and energy mm-hmm. that I really need to devote to my family. And so that was like another way they bounded things and another way they bedded, which was really fascinating um, because, you know, we have these sort of common sense ideas about cheating, right? So you have these ideas that like women cheat for validation and they fall in love with their partners and, and you know, maybe that is what happens when people cheat in the wild. Um, but in this scenario, that's yeah. really not um, what was going on at all, which was just really fascinating. So were you able, in your conversations with them, to get a sense of, um, like, how the timeline worked? So I guess what I mean is, um, what's the process by which somebody goes from being in this sexless marriage to thinking, okay, I'm I'm going to make this conscious decision to cheat, to now having like a stable of guys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like at what point? At what point that. do they realize that like one one affair isn't going to be enough for me? Is it right away? Like, do they go into this thinking like, okay, like I'm going to be a kid in the candy store kind of mentality, or is it like um, so starting to border on like addictive behavior maybe? I wouldn't describe it as addictive. Everything okay. they did was very methodical and very thought out. Okay. So women talked about spending years and sometimes decades in these marriages that just weren't meeting their sexual needs. And, you know, they, they tried counseling and, mm-hmm. you know, doctors if it's some kind of health issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they really tried everything that someone should try mm-hmm. in that particular scenario. And they all said, you know, it, it came down to this moment where I said, okay, either I have to leave this man, I have to blow up my life, I have to break his heart, break my children's heart, right? Mm-hmm. Or I got to get my needs met. And those are really my options. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to break this man's heart. And I love him. And I don't want to blow up my family. 
and I don't want to hurt anybody, but at the same time, I'm someone gonna, has to get. I'm going to do all those things anyway. <laughs> um, well, something they did talk about is being very careful with what they were doing. That was another part of that pragmatism. Yeah. Um, so they have all this guilt, and they say, um, you know, I'm nicer at home. If he, if he wants to have a fight about something, I'm going to stop and check myself because I'm a cheating B word. That's a mm-hmm. direct quote from one of my participants. Yeah. Um, but they, they did talk a lot about the, like the links that they went to, to try to ensure that their spouse never had to confront what was going on. Yeah. And I know that sounds really, you know, a lot of folks have taken issue and said like, Oh, they're really just, you know, protecting themselves, which sure, of course they're protecting themselves, but they were very clear about not wanting to hurt their husbands and not wanting him to ever have to um, endure the pain of knowing what was going on. Mm -hmm. So again, like what's, what does the timeline look like then? Are they, do they, did they choose to make a membership on Ashley Madison with the intention of finding multiple? Oh no, not typically. So, Okay, so they finally make the decision after years or decades. Mm-hmm. And then they go on Ashley Madison. And they all said, like, I just kind of went on to just sort of see. Mm-hmm. You know, just put my toe in the water. I just want to kind of see what's up. And what they discover is that they're just inundated with messages from men. Mm-hmm. You know, it was nothing to get 50 to 100 messages from different men mm-hmm. in their mailbox every single day. And so that's what sort of causes them to create some of these vetting processes, right? Cause it's just way too many people to wade through and another way that they felt powerful. Cause you think about dating organically when you were dating, when you were single dating, was there ever a situation where you had 50 to hundred people like dying to go out with you? No, that's not, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was your life. That's not typical. <laughs> that, I don't think for anyone else has never um, been anything in my life. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so, um, yeah, so they develop these, like, vetting processes. And so, no, initially they would just take on the single partner, right? Mm-hmm. And then they said, they learned very quickly, that was a mistake. Because, number one, you don't really know. You can, you can ask all the questions you want. You can bet all you want. But the reality is you don't know if that chemistry and connection and skill is actually really going to be there. Yeah. Right. You don't really know until you take the test drive, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so a lot of them learned in that instance, like, oh, I put all my eggs in this basket, and then this is just completely not worked out, right? Mm-hmm. And then some others, it worked out, and that's great, but then that person has overstated how much time they actually have mm-hmm. to meet with you, and so. Uh, you know, you're in a situation where maybe you're seeing this person once a month or once every other month and they're thinking, you know, if I'm going to cheat, it needs to be worth it, right? The sex needs to be good and it needs to be as plentiful as I want it to be. Otherwise, why am I making all these risks? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so how they explained it to me was um, over time, (laughs) trial and error, they came to realize that it made no sense for them to rely on one single outside partner. One woman explained you know, I've already done that in a marriage. I put all my, you know, I put all my hopes and dreams and needs and et cetera on one person. And that did not work out for me. And so why in the world would I replicate that in my infidelity? And so to them, the only thing that made sense, which you're right, they didn't just jump into this just mm-hmm. over time. This is kind of how it ended up working out. 
that the only thing that made sense to do was to keep that profile up, keep vetting partners, and to have several partners that they were seeing at any given time because, as they explained, folks' schedules change. People mm-hmm. overestimate how much time they actually have. Um, the chemistry may not really work out. It may mm-hmm. just be terrible sex, which is an utter waste of my time. Um, and people just, you know, they disappear. They they start to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. They get caught. They move. Their job changes. Whatever happens. And so by keeping uh, multiple partners in play in any particular moment, they can, number one, have as much sex as they wanted to have or could find the time to have outside of what of their primary partnership. Um, and they could ensure that they weren't relying on any one single person to meet their needs. Hmm. So how do they vary from the men that you, you interviewed? Okay, so this is fascinating. So the men are totally and completely different on, 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 on their face. They're a totally and completely different story, right? So at first it really looks like, wow, this is super gendered, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, and I'll circle back to why it's not. Okay, so the men that I spoke to, completely different approach, completely different mindset. So when you first start talking to them, like, how, you know, how did you start cheating and, you know, what led you to this moment, et cetera, et cetera. So they talked about sex and missing sex, but they very quickly moved totally away from that into talking about their emotional needs. Mm -hmm. And they talked about being in marriages where their perception of the relationship is that their wife is no longer interested in them as a person. Mm -hmm. She doesn't care about their day or their interests or their hopes and dreams and fears. Um, A lot of them talked about having sadness that she doesn't notice. Like one of them said, um, she's she's too involved with herself to notice a little sadness. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, have you voiced that sadness to her? They all really had this kind of conception that they don't have the autonomy to just voice their sadness. Mm -hmm. That they really need that female partner to notice it and investigate Mm -hmm. Right. Which was really heartbreaking and kind of fascinating at the same time. Mm -hmm. Certainly not anything that I would have ever thought on my own. Um, So they talked about relationships where, yes, they are having sex. Absolutely. These are sexual relationships. However, what they valued the most about them was how the partner made them feel. Mm -hmm. So they talked about they wanted a partner who they believed was extremely interested in them, their day, their fears, their hopes, et cetera. You know, who's going to ask, oh, you seem like maybe you're sad, you know, what's going on there? Um, And who made it very obvious that they sexually desired them as a partner and were very enthusiastic in bed because they described marital dynamics where their perception is that she's totally disinterested, that it's kind of a chore, um, they talked about wanting to have like extended sensual encounters and mm. their wives were like not interested. They're just like, let's get this done. Let's go. <laughs> you know, got things to do. Um, you know, you know, it's impossible for us to know if the descriptions these men are sharing yeah. are accurate. Right. Yeah. Without talking to the wives. So we can't know that, but this is how they perceive what's going on and what we perceive becomes reality to us. Mm-hmm. 
So whether that's actually the reality, it really doesn't matter. That's what they think is happening. So they saw these relationships that had an emotional component to it, that had high levels of like emotional connection and emotional intimacy. Many of them talked about trading I love you's with their partners, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you really did not hear that from the bulk of the women's samples. So at, at first glance, this seems like, wow, this is super gendered, right? Which is really strange. But in the women's sample, there were seven women who were totally different from the rest of the women. Mm-hmm. And they talked about really unsatisfying primary partnerships. Mm-hmm. Partnerships that lacked emotional connection and lacked emotional intimacy. And some of them were actually abusive, to be honest. Those women sought the same kinds of connections that the men also sought. So the difference really isn't gender. The difference is actually the state of the primary partnership itself. Mm-hmm. So at least among this group, if they're on Ashley Madison searching and they have like actually a pretty good marriage, they just have the sexual deficits, they're going to approach that very differently than somebody who's on Ashley Madison. And yeah, there could be a sexual deficit, but there's also this bigger deficit this emotional piece that they are trying to outsource. Mm-hmm. I yeah. also did a survey at the same time I collected these interviews, right? And the survey revealed that in terms of, you know, it, it, you can't really measure happiness, right? But you can measure somebody's perception of their happiness, right? So that survey revealed that the reasons for someone seeking infidelity impacts how happy they think the cheating makes them. You with me? Mm -hmm. So what the survey found was if folks were cheating solely to fill a sexual need, the affair tended to make them happier. And that was even more so if they were a woman. Hmm. But if they were trying to outsource an emotional piece of their primary partnership, the affair actually made them less happy. Really? Yes. Because they have that added um, guilt on it, on top of it, I guess. Um, well, I think, well, the, the people trying to outsource the sex had guilt as well. I think maybe maybe it's just harder to outsource an emotional relationship. Maybe it's, maybe it's frustrating, right? They, they took this gamble yeah. and it, it didn't work out. And that that's very, almost annoying, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of them talked about, um, so seven women and the men that I spoke to talked about, because um, we talked in the interviews about like, you know, because I'm curious, like this this is a lot of time investment. It could be a, a, a big money investment. Hotel rooms are not cheap, right? It's mm-hmm. so like, what is the payoff, right? What's keeping you in this? And so the seven women who were seeking to outsource the emotional piece and the men, um, it, it did not. In the interviews, it kind of backed up the survey data. It seemed like it maybe wasn't really so much making them happier. They talked about, like, I'm happy when I'm with my fair partner, but then when I come home, it just makes everything that I see as missing or as a deficit in my relationship, it just makes it seem that much worse, that much starker, right? Mm -hmm. Versus the women who were outsourcing the sexual component. They're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm tons happier. You know, mm-hmm. I've got this great relationship at home. Everything is great. And then this one little piece that was missing, I have that worked out. So I'm feeling great. So it does seem like 
if folks are trying to outsource the emotional component of their relationship, maybe that's just too large to outsource. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just too important. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But that is something that came up that was kind of fascinating. It's interesting to think of these two populations of people on this website Mm -hmm. trying to trying to meet up, right? When it seems like the majority of them have very different needs and goals that they want to get out of these relationships. And I guess from an Ashley Madison perspective, that's awesome because it means that people are going to keep paying (laughs) their subscription fee and keep trying to hook up because, but without, without knowing that what you're seeking from this is really impossible. (laughs) And that came up, which was really interesting to me, right? So the women talked about there's, you know, plentiful men. The men are just everywhere. You know, it's just a matter of finding the certain kind of man that I Mm -hmm. want, right? The men talked about um, just total frustration with trying to find a partner. Mm -hmm. And it it felt like this endless audition, which, see, I have this insider information. It is an endless audition, pal. That's exactly what's going on. Um, And the men talked about, like, I want one woman who's just going to see me. Uh huh. And so you're on the wrong the women, website for that. <laughs> right, you're on the wrong website. With women who had all these like multiple partners, I asked, "Well, do you do you tell your fair partners?" I'm like, "Oh no, all of them think that they're the only one." <laughs> so they're <laughs> so you know they're they're lying to their husbands by omission, right? Yeah. And they're and lying to their fair partners as well, which is. I mean, it's funny. It's not funny, but it's funny at the same time. But yeah, and so men were like, I'm I'm desperate to find this woman who's just going to see me. And, you know, she's going to be all about me. And that's very difficult to find. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, it's super difficult to find because that's not what most of them are looking for. So it was just fascinating. I I wish there was a way to, A, interview all these people's primary partners. Yeah. You know, that would be amazing. But also, B, it would have been fascinating to talk to the folks that they were cheating with. Mm -hmm. I had one couple in the study who were involved with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody else, I I have no idea. And interestingly enough, the the one couple who were cheating with one another who spoke to me, um, he was aware that she had all of these other partners, but he didn't, he didn't end up finishing my, he goes to me. We didn't finish the interview. Hmm. So I don't know what happened, but it would have been fascinating to be able to talk to the cheating partners as well. I don't know how in the world anybody would, would manage such a study, but that would be fascinating um, on top of what I had already found. Yeah. I was thinking like, it would be interesting to see a network analysis of like who, who hooked up with who. Right. You know, throughout the entire, I mean, either the sample or just like all of Ashley Madison or whatever. Like, yes, that would be really, and like how many how many people are on there who never, who are like earnestly trying to have an affair but are never successful? I think that would be interesting to talk to them. That would be very interesting. Everyone in my sample had had at least yeah. one affair, um, but I I am very curious to talk to folks who are using the site unsuccessfully, that would be very, very interesting. Yeah. Cause you can imagine like different reasons why, why yes. that would be. Well, I can tell you a lot of it is going to be location. Yeah. 
this came up a lot. So folks who were in larger, like, metro areas, for example, had far more success and had accumulated a lot more outside partners than Mm -hmm. folks who lived, you know, in smaller places. Yeah. Um, You know, smaller towns or, like, rural areas or something like that. Yeah. Some of them drove, like, considerable distances to carry on the affairs they were carrying on. So you can imagine they couldn't see each other very often. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because you got to drive across all of Montana to do it. <laughs> right. You know, you mean like a four or five hour drive to meet up, you know. How, how are you, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, conceal that kind of time investment, right? Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh, but it's, it's <laughs> my go-to nervous reaction, I guess. It's fun. It's, it's, yeah. Um. So how how does this go? How are you able to bring your your work into the classroom? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. So some of the classes I teach lend themselves to this topic, mm-hmm. right? So like my sexuality class obviously lends itself. Um, we touch on infidelity in the family class. Um, so in those ways, it comes in. Um, but in all the classes I teach, I'm very open about what I study um and sometimes students get really interested and you know want to work with me which is cool that's always good um but then also sometimes the work follows me in because of the media coverage Mm -hmm. of the work that I do so not last summer it must have been the summer before yeah it was the summer before I launched a study that is is a bona fide area of research. So it honestly never crossed my mind that it would be any kind of issue at all. I wanted to see the current research tells us that if a man believes himself to be small, the size of his penis, if he believes that to be small, even if it's actually not small, if he just thinks it, it can impact his self-esteem negatively. Mm-hmm. We know this. There are existing studies. So I was curious to see if that relationship ran the other direction. Mm-hmm. So if a man believes himself to be large, even if he isn't actually large, if he just thinks that he is, does that increase his self-esteem, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is a biological trait that travels together. I'm saying, like, in the social, right. you know, crucible that we all live in, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so, like I said, this is totally bonafide area of research. It never crossed my mind that this would be any kind of issue whatsoever because people study this. This is a thing. Um, Yeah, so, so very naive. Um, The study had been launched four days, I think. And are you familiar with the College Fix? Mm -mm. So the College Fix is a website whose stated mission is to discover liberal indoctrination of students. Okay. Yeah. And they ran a piece about my study. Mm-hmm. Now, the way the study worked was there was an interview component that was just like a regular interview component. You contact me, we have a interview over email or the phone. And then there was a survey component. And the survey component I got this brilliant idea because most of the time when we're studying penis size, you either have self-report, and honestly, men tend to short themselves, okay? 
Um, so that's not like terribly accurate. Or you have folks like go to a clinical site, you pay somebody to measure and right, and that comes with a whole set of problems as well, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I have no money. So there's that, right? So I come up with this brilliant idea. I thought it was really brilliant. I still think it's brilliant. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I came up with this great idea that men could have pictures showing the measurement, which would verify both the method, because there's a specific method that you want to use to measure, and the measurement itself. And they could submit this on an anonymous survey, Mm -hmm. right? And so once you confirm that the pictures verify the measurements, you delete the pictures, voila, yes? Mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of brilliant. I was like really impressed with myself. Look at at me. I'm so smart. Um, Yeah. So the write-up in the college fix made it sound like the interviews were also submitting pictures. Uh And so the the way it was written up was just sort of this, like, who is this female professor think she is that she's going to look at all these dick pics, right? Okay. Which the joke is on them. I had a male assistant who was actually going to look at all the pictures. So I wasn't even going to look at any of them, but okay. You know, the College Fix is like kind of a silly website and like the write-up is so silly. Like who would even believe this, right? So I'm I'm just kind of laughing about it. Not for long because (laughs) uh, within hours it is picked up. No one calls to verify anything in the story. They just run the story as it is. And it gets picked up everywhere. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm getting like a thousand emails a day. The phone is literally ringing off the hook. I just take it off the hook because I yeah. can't even yeah. answer it. Um, the emails are, the bulk of them are people wanting to participate in the study, which is great, right? But I don't have a team. I'm one person. Um, but a lot of the emails are, you know, fan mail. Uh, the first one that came in, it just read feral whore. Uh-huh. That was the whole email. Feral whore, which is my favorite insult to date. I was going to say, can I? Can we make that the episode title? Right, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm building so all these like really deeply insulting um, emails, which, you know, what, what does that rapper say? People hate us, but we just call them fans. Yeah, there you go. So I'm just like, all right, I, I mean, people are ridiculous, but okay. But the bigger issue is that I, I, I can't get everyone interviewed. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm starting at 8 and I'm working until 9 p.m. And I'm not even making a dent because every email I answer, there's 10 coming in. Um, so I'm very quickly getting to a place where I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to run the study and function and sleep and, you know, et cetera. So that's a problem. And then on the survey, my assistant tells me, hey, um, we're starting to get folks who are making like really outlandish answers and like uploading pictures of SpongeBob and Strawberry Shortcake and like things like that. Um, And alongside that news, a website, uh, an alt-right website um, ran a piece that had pictures of the outside of my house. Mm -hmm. Um, Gross. And those aren't public, and my Facebook is pretty locked down, so I don't actually know how they got those. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that one was a little rough. It kind of upset my children. They implied I was having sex with my dog and like all kinds of like really crazy stuff. Um, but the pictures of the outside the house really upset my kids because they were like, if you know the town that we live in at all, mm-hmm. you, you know where this is. You yeah. Know? Um, so I had to make the decision to close the study, mm-hmm. which was deeply disappointing. I had spent six years trying to figure out how to run the study. Yeah. Uh, and there was obviously all that interest. And it's two years later, and I still field between three and five emails every single month of folks begging me to do the study, begging to be interviewed, begging to talk about this topic. And the interviews that I did complete, um, you know, people laugh about this topic and they make a lot of jokes, but it's pretty serious. I talked to a guy who tried to kill himself. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how many interviews were you able to complete before you had to, like, how many real ones were you able to do before you had to shut it down? Uh, I think I did, like, I'm saying 76. I mean, I, yeah, I think I did, like, 76. Um, and they were, they were sad. The bulk of them were deeply, deeply sad. I talked to a guy who hadn't been to a doctor in 10 years. Oh, wow. he didn't want the doctor to see him naked. Mm-hmm. And I will say that after our interview, like a week after, he sent me a note to let me know that he went to his doctor and had a physical. Because I told him that what he reported to me was totally normal, that nobody was going to let him out of the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. So at least there's that. But, you know, it's unfortunate. It could have been really important, groundbreaking work. But, you know, I had to cancel it. But the bigger issue is... um, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The coverage is everywhere. Um, I still get, I've gotten some hate snail mail, which is interesting. Um, I, I've gotten a couple marriage proposals. There's a really nice Scottish Scottish guy that, you know, I, maybe, maybe I should have taken a little more time before <laughs> saying no to that one. It's kind of been a ride. Is he just um, looking yeah. for his emotional needs to be met, though? <laughs> you know, he probably is. And I, you know, uh, I'm not as good with my time as, as the women in the trip, so I, I, But I is he, I mean, is he independently wealthy? That's another thing to think about. You know, he's not. No. He's not. <laughs> well. Uh, <laughs> um, I got a really nice bottle of wine from a guy who has his own vineyard. There you go. Uh, I don't drink. Yeah, but I there, really there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so I've gotten some, some interesting uh, fan mail and some interesting uh, gifts. I'm not sure what that's about. But um, so I wasn't really going to, you know, discuss it. I wasn't going to bring that part of my work in the classroom, right? Yeah. But it, it followed me. Uh-huh. I, there was no real choice because it was everywhere. People had seen it. Um. There were jokes, you know, some male students that said, like, oh, I'm going to sign up for her class because I'm sure she gets extra credit, you know, and and things like that. So I kind of didn't really have a choice um, but to address it and make it very clear this is not that kind of class. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I just used it as an example um, to talk about gender. Because something interesting that happened in all that coverage is that most of the coverage that ran included a picture of me. They went on my faculty webpage and included a picture of me, which is curious because when is the last time you saw a report of a man's research 
that had his picture next to it because I don't really see that very often, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and I think the point of including the picture was to say, in case you missed it, this is a woman mm-hmm. who has the nerve to talk to men about their penises and to <gasps> look at pictures of penises, right? Which um, I want to be clear that these pictures were, you know, like something you would find in a textbook. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? These are not like sexy time pictures, right? These are, <laughs> these are clinical um, <laughs> pictures and not, nothing titillating about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so I just, I just go, I, I just went ahead and owned it. Okay. And I just talk about it on day one. And I use that as an opportunity to talk about gender and the fact that so much of the hate mail folks said their whole issue with what I was doing was um, something along the lines of like, who are you, a woman, to talk to men about their penises and to look at pictures of penises? And how would you feel if a man did a study about women's genitalia? genitalia? To which I always responded, well, men have done studies about that, so I don't know why this is a big issue. But, you know, there there was clearly a gender aspect to folks upset about it. Um, If I had been a man, I don't think it would have been an issue. I even had a couple men uh, who were researchers who reached out and offered to be like the face of the study Mm -hmm. so that I could run it. Um. So I clearly wasn't the only person who saw, you know, this is this is clearly an issue about gender. That's really what this is about. And so it's resulted in a lot of really interesting classroom discussions mm-hmm. um, about gender and about um, gender transgressions and, you know, how we feel about women who, you know, uh, commit these gender transgressions and do things that we don't think are uh, very feminine, right? Like talking about penises, apparently. Um, and so that's... <laughs> So that's really generated some some really valuable conversations, which is great. Um, I mean, I, I wish it hadn't happened. Yeah, <laughs> but of course. That's at least a positive um, outcome of it. And then uh, my other research students are they're interested. You know, they're kind of fascinated by it. Um, they want to know about Ashley Madison and how does it work, and how does it work to like email. Uh, do interviews over email and mm-hmm. things like that. And so it, it's kind of actually pretty easy to bring this stuff into the classroom. Um, in my intro class, it doesn't come up a lot except the week that we talk about like research methods. I will talk just a little about the study. Um, and it's interesting. Most of them really enjoy it. But then there's always one or two every semester in the evals who say, um, this isn't a class about sex, and I wish you wouldn't talk about her work, which is interesting because I just talk about the mechanics of the study, yeah. right? like how I recruited and how I collected data and things like that. I don't even get into these were the results or these are what people said or anything. So it's just kind mm-hmm. of fascinating. People have um, such bifurcated responses, you know, to sex research. You know, some people are really fascinated and like, oh, tell me more. And you, couldn't talk about it enough. And then some folks just even mentioning, I think even just me saying like, these are the topics that I research. Mm-hmm. Some folks are really, really very put off by it, which is unfortunate, but what can you do? <laughs> I just, I just remembered, uh, when I was working my PhD, I went to Bowling Green, which has like a, a very large family sociology yeah. component. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. and there was one summer where they had, a uh, the center for family and demographic research had, a like a stats workshop. Um, a guy came in from Carnegie Mellon and he was, he was the backup 
Um, the original presenter had to had to bail for something, but he was going to cover for him. Um, and so the the person who was originally supposed to do the talk had all kinds of like family sociology examples. Yeah. Um, a lot of it having to do with the number of sex partners. And so throughout the, throughout the day, the guy kept saying bed partners. <laughs> and, and at one point, um, the department statistician um, raised his hand and he said, so none of that stuff on the couch counts. And <laughs> the, guy, <laughs> the guy was so mortified. <laughs> like beat red like red is my sweatshirt like <laughs> so <laughs> and everybody else just cracked up at it like all all these you know very distinguished professors that i had at bg are just like practically rolling in the aisles <laughs> and, and that joke i felt so bad for that guy but it was it's <laughs> all these years later <laughs> I still, I don't remember anything else about that that workshop except for really for bed good. partners. That's, that's a great example, though. That's kind of how it is. It's it's really it's interesting to me the responses that folks have, um, and and sometimes there is sort of like a lack of respect for what you do. You know, folks think that you're just having fun. Which, you know, I, I deeply enjoy what I do. I really, really do. But it's toxic to gather this kind of data, you know, to have folks. I mean, sometimes folks tell you just intensely sad stories. I'm sure. Um, you know, and so, it, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me, like, how tripped up folks get about the topic and how that can just color everything they think about you and your work and um the research as a whole which is just interesting because you know how is it any different than someone studying crime or yeah economics or you know what i'm saying like it all it all has its elements that are yes you enjoy it but it all has its elements that are taxing oh yeah for sure i mean if you go and go into a prison and interview kids who are or, or guys who are in a gang, like you're not going to get really uplifting <laughs> stories of resilience and, and redemption. Like you're going to get super heartbreaking, emotionally devastating stories about what these guys have been through. Right. Exactly. Which is like, it's, yeah. it's funny to think about too, because that's something that I deal with because my students come into this mate, into our major thinking like, this is going to be a lot of car chases and like, it's all action and it's not. <laughs> and, uh, have to like tell them right away like i'm i'm trying to teach you to be a good person you know to have empathy for all these people who yes they've done things that you think are really terrible but um you know try to put yourself in their shoes and and see see their situation from their perspective and you're not gonna be able to pass judgment at all yeah you know yeah (laughs) so and that's and that's kind of something that i really try to drive home um, in these two books, that it's very easy to just have a knee-jerk reaction to folks cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Because none of us want to be cheated on, yeah. right? We all gobble up gossip about somebody else's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know we, we don't ever want that to be the situation. Um, and so, you know, our immediate thing is just to be like, oh, these are all terrible people. And, and you know, and maybe that's true with some folks. But um, there's a lot of pain <laughs> in these narratives. There's an incredible depth of need that drove 
all of these folks to log on to that website and look for someone. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important to have empathy um, to say it must be terrible to be in such a situation that you would make this choice, that you feel like you have no other recourse but to make this choice, especially when you're talking to folks who are deeply in love with the spouse they're cheating mm-hmm. on. And you think about, you know, navigating those very conflicting things inside of yourself, that would be painful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's something that really gets lost. You know, lots of people, lots of journalists want to talk about this work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them get really frustrated and, you know, accuse me of being like a infidelity apologist or something like that. You know, which I, this is not a how-to and I'm certainly not, <laughs> you know, suggesting <laughs> that this is what people should do. Um, matter of fact, I've had people reach out to me and, oh, I have all these problems in my marriage and, 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 and basically set up the scenario like, like, give me permission to cheat. You know, uh-huh. I always say to them, listen, let me, let me explain what you're about to do to yourself if you make that decision. Um, yeah, which I also find fascinating because, again, using the same example, people who study crime, we don't accuse them of being crime apologists. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's just kind of fascinating just to res- <laughs> you know, the responses that people have to the work. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, that's funny. I, I think. Yeah, I, I've had people accuse me of being anti-cop before in class. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but but I think that's different from being from being branded a crime apologist. And that was during, I mean, that was just a couple of students during the height of, or like really the month after Ferguson, or the few weeks that our semester started after the Ferguson riots. Oh, wow, yeah. That's um, and I had students who were, um, I have a lot of students who are basically born and bred to be, to be cops, who were... Yeah who were not pleased with my having to, to talk about like, um, here's the long history of racism and corruption and <laughs> right. violence, not just in Ferguson, but in, in police departments around the country. And, and yeah. they, a lot of students don't like having that, uh, bubble busted. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. they, they want to believe that the police are just like super Eagle Scouts. Like they're all Captain America. <laughs> and oh, it's yeah. just not, yeah not true but i've never been accused of being a crime apologist before that, that would be kind of funny actually <laughs> soon when i started at my job the students started a rumor about me oh, that wow. the reason i taught criminology was because i had escaped from prison or that i had been in prison what? Um, yeah because of what i because of how i look because i'm i'm very tall and i'm very big um and kind of a mean looking guy <laughs> and they started a rumor that i had yeah that i was i taught crime that, that i was hired to teach about crime because i was in fact a ex-convict <laughs> and wow. like that's so did you address that uh yeah i talked about it a lot in class actually um like the the choices that i've made and like the little bit of my physical appearance that i have control over uh I talked to him about how I, I started losing my hair when I was 19, and so that's why I shaved yeah. my head. Uh, I have the beard because uh, I don't like how I look without it, <laughs> and because I don't have hair to mess around with, so I need something to, some way of self-expression. Like, the shaved yeah. head is not, <laughs> is not like a statement, <laughs> other than I was 19 and didn't want to look like... <laughs> 
<laughs> didn't want to look like that. And like, uh, which is funny because then the, like, there's always at least one guy in class who reflexively starts running his, his fingers through his hair. Oh. <laughs> and, and I was like, should I shave them? Yeah. And like, you and en- like, enjoy it while you have it, but fire it before it quits on you, you know? And then the, the guys, and I've always had guys who have like outrageous hair. And so I, I tell them, like, I'm living vicariously through you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, other, like, I can't control how I look, you know? That's horrible, though. Um, that's really horrible that they spent. I, that's my there's a there's a t- <laughs> another time I was um it was the, it was graduation day and I was walking back to my car and uh, I was kind of dressed like I don't get like I don't dress up really for class I did kind of then now it's just like jeans and like a button down um, but right. it was graduation so I wanted to look a little nice for the parents um, and so I was walking back to my car and this guy um, who lived in town I've never seen him before. Um, yelled at me from across the street from our parking garage, and he's like, "Hey, did you do my tattoo?" <laughs> and I was like, I "Like, no, sir, I didn't." And he's like, "Are you sure?" And I'm like, "I, I didn't do your tattoo." And he goes, "He goes, man, all you motherfuckers look alike." <laughs> Have a good day, sir. <laughs> And so I tell that story in my students and they're like, there's, there's always a few of them whose eyes get big and they're like, you do look like that tattoo guy from Scranton. You should go, you should go there and meet him, Dr. Wilzak. <laughs> like I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I, I'm, I don't, I don't have any tattoos. I don't plan on getting any. I'm that it's could not, be your fallback career. Apparently. It's not my yeah. Just oh you look no, like the tattoo guy. My entire life, I've had my entire adult life, I've had people um say like say stuff like that to me. Uh, I remember at a it was a wedding, I think, and like a, a distant relative had already been drinking and came up to me and told me that I looked like a a rap star's bodyguard. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I I get all kinds of like fat phobic uh, <laughs> types of types of stuff said to me and my and and I I attribute like the crime or like the the ex convict thing that the students were joking about as oh. just being part of that like they're they don't expect professors to look like uh, I do that's why I lean like I make a lot of self deprecating jokes in class to try to like address that. Um, I understand that some of them might be uncomfortable <laughs> by my presence. That's so, that's so weird to me, but though. I, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything non-professory about how you look. <laughs> I yeah. don't get it. I don't know. I mean, I used to be... I mean, I can't lift as much weight as I used to because I've got, I think, like, arthritis in my shoulders developing and just, like, a lot of a lot of injuries catching up to me. But um, I used to be, like, a big kind of power lifter like never like professional professional but i was like i was pretty strong um and i would joke about how like one of these days i'm going to go into the gym and work out with the football team and put you guys to shame and like even the football players would get uncomfortable with that because <laughs> they would be like you you probably could <laughs> and so they're just not used to they're just not used to seeing somebody in the classroom who is who is this right and is and like I, 
I tell stories about like, you know, I think, you know, this, my, I had a friend who, who passed away a few years ago. Um, and so I, I tell them that story. I talk a lot about my daughters in class. And so I do lots of things to try to appear like, um, vulnerable, I mm-hmm. think to my students. And that kind of think further contributes to like, nobody knows how to, how to, uh, interact with me because what they see is like this guy appears to be this very angry uh gruff kind of dude and i'm like here's my pink water bottle right (laughs) and they don't and they don't get it and i and i tell them stories about like playing with my kids that you wouldn't that they at least around here i guess maybe don't typically expect so yeah (laughs) that's so fascinating to me I wouldn't have have expected that at all, to be honest. I don't know. I'm so used to it now uh, (laughs) that it, I mean, sometimes it, sometimes it bothers me a little bit, but um, most of the time, uh, not really. Like, cause I, I am used to being able to like play the part of like the really mean gruff guy. And so I can just give him a look. And now with two kids at home, I have like all that dad, uh, right. <laughs> the dad skills down. Right, like, right. Stop it. <laughs> Give them like a five count to cut their shit out or whatever. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That's a that's. I guess that's an impact of gender I wouldn't have anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I don't know from from going to conferences and stuff. Like I. I always stand out. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm taller than average, but I'm not like tall, like really, really tall, you know, but I don't know. I always, (laughs) I'm just, I'm just used to going through life as this, I I will tell them, like I've, I've referred to myself as Shrek, uh, as Hagrid. I'm six, four. Okay. Yeah. So not like, not like hugely tall. I've only ever had two students who are taller than me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's the height and the height and the size. So I don't know how we even got on. This isn't about me. <laughs> we don't well, need to. No, but that is interesting. That's that's sharing. That is, that is interesting, and that's something I would have never. That would never have crossed my mind. Yeah, I don't know. It's. Uh, I'm, I'm interested now to see too how how it changes now with the online like mm-hmm. dynamic. Um, yeah. and all of that. Cause I think a lot of that playing field is going to kind of have to be leveled now. And so I'm curious to see like, how do course evals change when yeah. students can't leave like sexist comments for their, or for my, our female colleagues, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Academia is super fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So 
if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H E Y D R W I L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.